Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hey, Frank. I'm glad to be able to talk to you again today. I'm looking forward to recording another podcast episode with you. Hope everything is is well in your world. And and just kind of a preview here, I want to talk to you a little bit about ocean inspections and kind of picking up where we left off with our last podcast. that fair? Hey, it sounds good to me. And I appreciate the platitudes. I hadn't had any this morning yet. Well, it might be the last of the day, so you better savor them. Anyhow, so picking up where we left off, you know, we, we had, in our last episode, we had talked about the RRI response, and we had talked about, you know, for lack of a better term, the RRI response that, um, or, or to use your term, the R2I response that ends up triggering a, a full-blown inspection. And, and I wanted to, to shift gears just a little bit and, and, and start talking about the actual on-scene, at-the-workplace inspections with OSHA. And, you know, kind of start off the, the questions with this question, which is, you know, kind of what are the duties and expectations OSHA has in mind with employers when an inspection takes place? The authority to conduct inspections comes from the OSHA Act, and the requirement of an employer to comply with certain standards and a, and a general industry standard saying, basically, uh, you're going to provide a safe workplace for your employees comes from two specific provisions in the OSH Act. And anybody who's been around the business much has probably heard the phrase 5A1 and 5A2. And those are references to sections of the Occupational Safety and Health Act. And the five is a section number, A is in parenthetical, and that references a paragraph in that section. And then one is in a parenthetical also, and it references a specific part of the same paragraph. So 5A1 is called the general duty clause. And every now and then you hear it referred to as as the general duty clause, a 5A1, or even a GDC violation. And that's what people are referring to when they give you that number. And the general duty clause essentially says that an employer is required to provide a workplace that's free of recognized hazards. And that's very specific to an employer. The 5A2, which is set up and structured the same way I just explained it with the paragraphs and the parentheticals, is point number two uh, under the paragraph A. And it says that OSHA gets to create these standards. And they're the specific standards that we see in our thousand page books, thousand plus page books, really, that, that include uh, hundreds of different regulations. And those are the specific regulations that you hear us referencing. 5A1, 5A2, those are, those are provisions of the OSH Act that primarily point us to all these specific standards in the regulations that we cite under different chapters, uh, chapter 1910, 1926, 1918, so on and so forth. That's, that's what we're referencing under 582. 
I know we're supposed to break this up more than this, John. I'm sorry for this, but I, I felt like it was important that we we recap just a moment from our last conversation, and that's the reason that OSHA conducts inspections. And we'd we'd listed a couple of them, uh, getting to a, an RRI letter, a rapid response investigation letter. But I find, and correct me if, or, or offer your input if you think that I'm over-identifying these issues, but I find there's four ways that OSHA typically starts inspections uh, of my clients, or our clients, sorry. It's, uh, if there's been a workplace accident, if there's been a complaint, uh, if, there's a, uh, if we're on a, uh, an emphasis program or programmed inspection list, or sometimes even compliance officers, especially in construction settings, will be driving by and they'll see an issue that they'll want to address. Cranes and falls are most frequent uh, in my experience. Is that consistent with your experience, John? Yeah, Frank, it's very consistent with my experience. The, the, the one sort of clarifying point or the one point that I would make that, that's you know kind of expounding upon what you said is with respect to the accidents, the Inspections are most heavily triggered when there's been what's characterized by OSHA as a serious event. Serious events involve death, inpatient hospitalization for more than observation, amputation, eye out. I guess that's it. Um, but but those 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 are the types of accidents that most frequently trigger the inspections. The other type of accident that doesn't actually fall into one of those categories, but that, that certainly does um, have a tendency to draw ocean inspections is, is the incident that involves something that ends up hitting the media. If there is something that uh, the local news channels um, pick up, OSHA it tends to be on those very rapidly. Um, the other is um, if you know local law enforcement is involved in something uh, or, or not, not even law enforcement, not local nine one one response. Those incidents tend to to draw OSHA inspections. I know you do a ton of construction work, and I, I think it may bear to have a little expanding. If you if you talk a little bit more about what I euphemistically refer to as the drive by, and and how that triggers inspections, and kind of the things that you've seen with respect to the drive by. Yeah, and I think that's fair. Uh, the, uh, the the thing of, about uh, the OSH Act is that the compliance officers are not supposed to be able to enter a workplace uh, unless they have probable cause. A, a report of an accident, an employee complaint, uh, the programmed inspections, those are all elements of establishing probable cause that entitles OSHA to come and conduct an inspection. But OSHA can also see a violation from the road. So back, and I don't know if they're still doing it, but in some places I think they are, but they used to have this drone program where they'd, they'd launch these drones over construction sites or other operations so they could see if there's a violation that was plainly visible from outside the the walls, as it were, of, of where the work was being conducted. And if a OSHA compliance officer identifies a violation that is probable cause to conduct an inspection. So, for instance, if you're a home builder uh, and you're conducting uh, construction of homes, if that's what you're doing and an OSHA compliance officer drives by and sees people working above six feet without any type of fall protection, uh, then that may give OSHA probable cause to stop, knock on the trailer and say, hey, I'm here to conduct an inspection. And 
that's the opening conference and that's where you find out the reason that they're going to be there to inspect. But if they see it from the street or if they see it from the air, then they likely have probable cause to conduct an inspection. And Frank, I, I don't know, I, I'm, I know you were doing this type of work back in the day, but in the late 2000s and early 2010s, you remember the days of the, and I don't remember if it was SWAT SWAT or SWAT SWOT, but where a couple of the area offices in Texas were kind of intentionally going out and driving around areas that they knew a bunch of residential construction was taking place to do that type of drive-by inspection? Still happens. I've had an opportunity to work with one of the area offices to, to help do some, just some industry awareness to help the industry understand. Because uh, what I found is the offices weren't trying to do a gotcha. They're just really trying to make employers aware of, of the expectation. And I, I know it's not an, an easy task to manage uh, as a, anybody in construction to make sure all the subs are doing what they need to. And we'll have to save this for another conversation. But with, uh, with, with the recognition of the multi-employer citation policy uh, here in, in Region 6, uh, that's become a, a bigger issue. And so, yeah, as soon as th- that case became law, we did see an increase in the types of drive-bys and what I would call impact enforcement, where they'd send compliance officers out in groups and do impact enforcement, mostly to to write smaller citations and to put everybody on notice of the expectations under the OSHA Act. No, Frank, and, and, and I probably misspoke. And so what I actually meant to say was, you know, they were very, very public and they were doing a lot of announcements back in the late 2000s, early 2010s about, you know, the, the SWAT program, I assume kind of playing off the law enforcement term SWAT and, and, you know, kind of getting out there, but they certainly are still, you know, doing the, the kind of mass enforcement that you talked about with the drive-bys and residential construction areas today. Shifting gears a little bit though, wanted to kind of circle back to the employer's obligations during an inspection and, you know, what is expected legally of the employer in the course of the inspection and what, you know, kind of practical tips and guidance you can provide our, our listeners relative to any inspection activity they might undertake or be involved in? I think probably the place to start is how inspections develop. Uh, once OSHA's identified a reason to come to somebody's workplace and conduct an inspection, the very first thing they are expected, the compliance officer is expected to do is to contact somebody in management to conduct an opening conference. And that opening conference, the the whole point and purpose of that opening conference from Moshe's perspective is to let you know they're there and why they're there. What's brought them there? Were they brought there because as an employer, you had to report an inpatient hospitalization that involved treatment? Are they there because of an employee complaint? Are they there because your name came up uh, on a on an enforcement program list, uh, or did they do the drive by that John and I were just talking about? Before you kind of go further down that road, could you, for the listener that's never gone through an OSHA inspection, could you kind of explain what an opening conference typically looks like? Sure. So an opening conference involves the compliance officer coming in. They knock on the door and they say hello. Uh, I'm here uh, with OSHA. They show their credentials. 
I need to speak with the manager in charge because I need to conduct an inspection of this establishment. At that point, there will be, uh, and this I don't want to get into to an, an advisory protocol here, but typically then the compliance officer will sit down with one or more members of management and have this discussion about, about why they're there. The, the discussion goes on. And the compliance officer, after after he or she explains why they're there, asks to have access to the facility, to walk the facility, and to go investigate the the reason that uh, they've arrived on site. As soon as they come in, uh, employers have rights, uh, and and those rights are many. While they might have, you might find that OSHA has probable cause to conduct an inspection. The employer doesn't is not left without uh, rights to help. Let's see how we say that. There, an employer has rights to, or still has a fair expectation of privacy, and may be able to have a discussion with the compliance officer about the scope of an inspection, or even the right to refuse to let OSHA enter. Let me stop you. Let me talk about two things there. So let's first talk about the credentials piece. Um, I'm assuming like. You've had, or like I've had this experience, you've probably had the same experience where in showing their credentials, the compliance officer will sometimes have something that in certain respects looks like a badge. They can be intimidating when they come in and they say, uh, you know, I'm here with the federal government. I'd be intimidated if I, if I didn't know them all a lot better than I do. Right. And some of them will even go so far as in kind of the opening, you know, mentioning that, you know, under certain sections of the the federal criminal code, you know, lying to one of them or providing false information in whatever form that may be is a criminal violation. But that doesn't mean they're a law enforcement officer, right? They're not associated with the criminal branch. Some of them, uh, a lot of them, I find, have have been law enforcement officers at some point in time. A lot of them came out of the military as law enforcement officers or MPs. Uh, and recently, I met an NCIS officer. He was pretty cool. Uh, by the way, he said that the TV show is uh, only 1% reality. Uh, it doesn't surprise me, uh, but I can't help but call him Agent Gibbs every time I talk to him. But then the second thing I wanted to talk about was you know something you alluded to, which you know, really relates to, you know, sort of the constitutional amendment, uh, the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution, the right to privacy, the fact that the government can't come into a place without probable cause, without justification. And, you know, if you could talk a little bit about, you know, something that a lot of employers are uncomfortable with, which is limiting the scope of the investigation according to the probable cause or the basis of probable cause that brought OSHA into the uh, workplace and, and, and how an employer can do that and how they're justified in doing that. So that if as a, for instance, you know, there's a programmed inspection and the reason for the programmed inspection is trenching and excavation, that an employer is perfectly justified in limiting the scope of that inspection to trenching and excavation issues. Would you mind explaining that a little bit for our audience? Let's first talk about Fourth Amendment. You have uh, a Fourth Amendment right uh, as a property owner operating a business uh, to keep OSHA out of non-public areas unless you give them consent or unless they enter with a warrant. 
And I'm not going to talk about the warrant issue because that's a six-hour podcast, right? I'm going to talk about consent. An employer can give OSHA limited consent to enter. So, and I'm not going to use trenching. I'm going to use a press break because that makes for a little bit of an easier case that I can illustrate. So a press break is a type of machine that was part of an emphasis program and employers that use press breaks uh, were on uh, an emphasis program list where OSHA would would give a random assignment of names and then they'd draw those names out of the random list. Ran- making it randomized like that um, uh, is a, a, a basis to establish probable cause because there's there's no targeting a company. It's It's purely random selection. This one compliance officer went and did an initial inspection of a press break at this one employer's operation decades ago. And uh, they looked at the press break and didn't find any problems with it. And then this compliance officer looked up and said, hey, but I think I see uh, another machine over there that looks like a crane. I'd like to go see that. And that compliance officer moved over and looked at that crane, found problems. And eventually that compliance officer worked themselves all the way through a, about a 30,000 square foot space and, and turned one press break inspection. And this press break was right inside the door to the shop, right? But that compliance officer turned that press break inspection into a wall-to-wall inspection just because the employer didn't know they could stop the compliance officer from going forward. What the compliance officer said is, well, if I see a violation in plain view, then I'm entitled to inspect it. And the employer got confused by seeing a violation in plain view uh, as opposed to seeing another piece of equipment in plain view. So when the compliance officer said, hey, is that a crane? The employer said, yes, it is. So we have to go look at it. And she said, I'd like to go look at it. Uh, and the employer said, okay, well, let's go look at it. It was a pretty smooth way to, to work themselves, for that compliance officer to work themselves all the way through the entire operation by just identifying pieces of equipment. What I usually say in response to a compliance officer identifying another piece of equipment and asking to go inspect it, my typical response is, hey, uh, I, I see the crane too. Do you see a violation? No, but you know, uh, uh, cranes are part of an emphasis program as well. And so I'd like to go inspect it. I, I hear you. Do you see a violation? No. Okay. So did this company come up on the emphasis list for crane inspection? No. So, and then my response typically is, well, then uh, I, I don't have any authority to let you move to the next item. I don't have authority to let you go inspect that crane. If you feel like you want to inspect cranes, then we need to have another opening conference so I can understand and advise my clients on, uh, on whether you have probable cause to conduct that inspection. Now, Frank, if they basically put their paperwork down at that point and said, okay, let's go up to the office, let's have the opening conference relative to the crane inspection, and the employer didn't just come up randomly on the crane inspection enforcement list, in your opinion, does OSHA still have probable cause to proceed with a crane inspection of that employer? Every time that's happened to me, uh, where they've they've tried to expand it, and I make that challenge, 
and we go back and we have that conversation, I've concluded that they did not have probable cause because they didn't. Uh, a couple of times I've had to get on the, on the phone with the supervisor for the compliance officer, but the supervisors are typically very competent and can make the same analysis. And in each of those cases, and there, there've been uh, about a dozen in the last 20 years where that's happened. And about every case, when not in about, in every single case, the manager agreed no probable cause that the compliance officer was uh, getting out over their skis, as it were. I think the important point to take away from that is that an employer should consider what rights they have and how far they're going to go. I, I don't know how often you hear this, but frequently I, I hear folks say, I'm a little bit concerned it's going to make OSHA mad and they're going to really come after us harder or something. Uh, and my usual thought is, well, if they're already there conducting an inspection and wanting to expand the inspection to other areas, then it seems to me like they're already coming after you harder. Yeah, well, I mean, to your point about turning things into a six-hour podcast, I mean, I think we could turn this into a very long podcast, you know, in terms of this kind of concept that, you know, because I do X, OSHA is going to retaliate and do Y. I hear all the time, and I'm sure you hear the same thing, you know, kind of regardless of, of what the issue may be, that if the employer, you know, to, to, for lack of a better term, using kind of the schoolyard expression, you know, stands up for themselves, that OSHA is going to take some sort of punitive measure or engage in some sort of punitive response. And, and honestly, it's it's never been my experience for OSHA to actually do that. And in fact, when we pushed pretty hard and, and not, you, you can't push hard and be in the wrong. You have to push hard and be in the right. But where you pushed hard and you're in the right, I've never had a situation where OSHA's come back and did something that was viewed by anybody as, as punitive or remunerative or what have you. I think we're getting short on time uh, for this we podcast, are. but but I thought maybe I'd, I'd mention, and we can go into more detail next time, uh, after the opening conference, uh, OSHA conducts a walk around and then asks to do interviews. In my experience, it's these opening moments that define the entire case uh, in just about every situation. Sometimes for a more serious and deeper investigation, it can go on in more detail for lots more weeks. But I think the average amount of time spent on a, an inspection is somewhere in the, the range of seven to 17 hours. And those first hours, those are the most critical hours in my experience. So uh, having a plan and, and a response strategy is something I would consider as an employer before it happens. And it may never happen to you that you get inspected, but if it does, having that plan in place and knowing how, how, how to respond is, if I was running a business, it's something I would consider strongly uh, long before it ever happens. Yeah. Well, to your point, Frank, and I mean, this is true in pretty much all human interactions, first impressions are very, very important. And, and, and that's no different with an employer dealing with OSHA than it is, you know, in any other set of circumstances. We are getting towards the end here, Frank, and or we really have reached the end. Um, and we never got to the point of kind of what are the obligations of an employer in an inspection uh, from a legal perspective. And so I guess we'll have to save that for next time. But Frank, once again, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. I look forward to our next podcast.
Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.